This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address mercurialspirit.co.uk From October to Brest-Litovsk by Leon Trotsky Chapter 25 Address of the People's Commissar on Foreign Affairs Comrades, upon Soviet Russia has fallen the task not only to construct a new, but also to recapitulate the old to a certain degree, or, rather, to a very large degree, to pay all bills, first of all bills of war, which has lasted three and a half years. The war put the economic power of the belligerent countries to a severe test. The fate of Russia, a poor, backward country, in a protracted war was predetermined. In the terrible collision of the military machines, the determining factor, after all is said and done, is the ability of the country to adapt its industries to the military needs, to rebuild it on the shortest notice and to produce in continuously increasing quantities the weapons of destruction which are used up at such an enormous rate during this massacre of peoples. Almost every country, including the most backward, could and did have powerful weapons of destruction at the beginning of the war. That is, it obtained them from foreign countries. This is what all the backward countries did, and so did Russia. But the war speedily wears out its dead capital, demanding that it be continuously replenished. The military power of every single country drawn into the whirlpool of the world massacre was, as a matter of fact, measured by its ability to produce independently, and during the war itself, its cannons and shells and other weapons of destruction. If the war had decided the problem of the balance of power in the very short time, Russia might conceivably have turned out to be on that side of the trenches which victory favoured. But the war dragged along for a long time, and it was not an accident that it did so. The fact alone that the international politics were for the last 50 years reduced to the construction of the so-called European balance of power, that is, to a state in which the hostile powers approximately balance one another, this fact alone was bound, when the power and wealth of the present bourgeois nations is considered, to make it a war of an extremely protracted character. That meant, first of all, the exhaustion of the weaker and economically less developed countries. The most powerful country in a military sense proved to be Germany, because of the strength of the industries and because of their modern and rational construction as against the archaic construction of the German state. France, with its undeveloped state of capitalism, proved to be far behind Germany, and even such a powerful colonial power as Great Britain, owing to the conservative and routine character of the English industries, proved to be weaker than Germany. When history put before the Russian Revolution the question of the peace negotiations, we had no doubt that in these negotiations, and so long as the decisive power of the revolutionary proletariat of the world had not interfered, we should be compelled to stand the bill of three and a half years of war. There was no doubt in our minds that in the person of the German imperialism we were dealing with an opponent who was saturated with consciousness of his immense power, which was strikingly revealed during the present war. 
All the arguments made by bourgeois cliques that we might have been incomparably stronger if we had conducted these negotiations together with our allies are absolutely without foundation. In order that we might, at an indefinite future date, conduct negotiations together with our allies, we should first of all have had to continue the war together with them. And if our country was weakened and exhausted, the continuation of war, a failure to bring it to a conclusion, would have still further weakened and exhausted it. We should have had to settle the war under conditions still more unfavorable to us. In the case even that the combination of which Russia, owing to international intrigues of Tsarism and the bourgeoisie, had become a part the combination headed by Great Britain, in the case even that this combination had come out of the war completely victorious, let us for a moment admit the possibility of such as a not very probable issue, even in that case, comrades, it does not mean that our country would also have come out victorious. For during further continuation of this protracted war, Russia would have become even more exhausted and plundered than now. The masters of that combination, who would concentrate in their hands the fruits of the victory, that is, Great Britain and America, would have displayed towards our country the same methods which were displayed by Germany during the peace negotiations. It would be absurd and childish to appraise the politics of the imperialistic countries from the point of view of any considerations other than those considerations of naked interests and material power. Consequently, if we, as a nation, are at present weakened before the imperialism of the world, we are weakened not because of extricating ourselves from the fiery ring of the war, having already previously extricated ourselves from the shackles of international military obligations. No, we are weakened by that very policy of the Tsarists and the bourgeois classes, which we, as a revolutionary party, have always fought against before this war and during this war. You remember, comrades, under what conditions our delegation went to Brest-Litovsk last time, right after one of the sessions of the Third All-Russian Congress of the Soviets. At that session, we reported on the state of the negotiations and the demands of our opponents. These demands, as you remember, were really no more than masked, or rather half-masked, annexationist, aspirations at the expense of Lithuania, Courland, and part of Livonia, the Isles of Moonsound, as well as half-mast demands for a punitive war indemnity, which we then estimated would amount to six, eight, or even ten milliards of rubles. During interruption of the sessions, which continued for about ten days, a considerable disturbance took place in Austria-Hungary. Strikes of masses of workers broke out, and these strikes were the first recognition of our methods of conducting peace negotiations that we met with from the proletariat of the central empires, as against the annexationist demand of the German militarism. We promised here no miracles, but we did say that the road we were pursuing was the only road remaining to the revolutionary democracy for securing the possibility of its further development. There is room for complaint that the proletariat of the other countries, and particularly of the central empires, is too slow to enter the road to open revolutionary struggle. Yes, it must be admitted that the pace of its development is all too slow. But, 
nevertheless there could be observed a movement in austria-hungary which swept the entire state and which was a direct echo of the brest-litovsk negotiations leaving from brest-litovsk it was our common opinion that there was no ground to believe that just this wave would sweep away the austro-german militarism if we had been convinced that this could be expected we would gladly have given the promise that several persons demanded from us namely that under no circumstances would we sign a separate peace with germany i said at that very time that we could not make such a promise for it would amount to taking upon ourselves the obligation of vanquishing the german militarism the secret of attaining such a victory was not in our possession and inasmuch as we would not undertake the obligation to change the balance of the world powers at a moment's notice we frankly and openly declared that revolutionary power may under certain conditions be compelled to agree to an annexationist peace a revolutionary power would fall short of its high principles only in the event that it should attempt to conceal from its own people the predatory character of the peace but by no means however in the event of the course of the struggle should compel it to adopt such a peace at the same time we indicated that we were leaving to continue negotiations under conditions which were seemingly improving for us and becoming worse for our enemies we observed the movement in austria-hungary and there were signs indicating this was made the basis for statements by representatives of the german social democracy in the reichstag that germany was on the eve of similar events we went with this hope during the first days of this visit to brest-litovsk the wireless brought us from vilna the first news that in berlin an enormous strike movement was developing this movement as well as that of austria-hungary was directly connected with the course of negotiations in brest however as is often the case by reason of the dialectic of the class struggle just this conspicuous beginning of the proletarian rising which surpassed anything germany had ever seen was bound to push the property classes to a closer consolidation and to greater hostility against the proletariat the german dominated classes are saturated with a sufficiently strong instinct of self-preservation to understand that concessions in such an exigency as they were in under the pressure of the masses of their own people concessions however small would amount to capitulation before the idea of the revolution that is why after the first moment of perplexity and panic the time when Kuhlmann deliberately dragged out the negotiations by minor and formal questions had passed, as soon as the strikes were disposed of, as soon as he came to the conclusion that for the time being no imminent danger threatened his masters, he again changed front and adopted a tone of unlimited self-confidence and aggression. Our negotiations were complicated by the participation of the Kiev Rada. We called attention to this last time, too. The delegation from the Kiev Rada appeared at a time when the Rada represented a fairly strong organization in the Ukraine and when the way out of the war had not yet been predetermined. Just at that time we made the Rada an official offer to conclude a definite treaty with us, making as one of the conditions of such a treaty the following demand that the rada declare kaladin and kornilov to be counter-revolutionists and put no hindrance in the way of our waging war on these two leaders the delegation from the kiev rada arrived just when we hoped to reach an understanding with it on these matters 
we declared that as long as the people of the Ukraine recognized the Rada, we considered its independent participation in these negotiations permissible. But with the further development of events in Russian territory and in the Ukraine, and the more antagonism between the Ukrainian masses and the Rada increased, the greater became the Rada's readiness to conclude any kind of treaty with the governments of the central empires, and if need be, to drag German imperialism into the internal affairs of the Russian Republic in order to support the Rada against the Russian Revolution. On the ninth day of February, we learned that the peace negotiations carried on behind our backs between the Rada and the Central Powers had been signed. The ninth of February happened to be the birthday of, of Leopold of Bavaria, and, as it is the custom in monarchical countries, the triumphant historical act was timed, with or without the consent of the Kiev Rada for this festive day. General Hoffman had a salute fired in honour of Leopold of Bavaria, having previously asked permission to do so of the Kiev delegation, since by the Treaty of Peace, Brest-Litovsk had been ceded to Ukraine. Events had taken such a turn, however, that at the time General Hoffman was asking permission for a military salute, the Kiev Rada had but very little territory left outside of Brest-Litovsk. On the strength of the telegrams we had received from Petrograd, we officially made it known to the Central Powers delegation that the Kiev Rada no longer existed, a circumstance which certainly had some bearing on the course of the peace negotiations. We suggested to Count Sternin that his representatives accompany our officers into Ukrainian territory to ascertain whether the Kiev Rada existed or not. Sternin seemed to welcome the suggestion, but when we asked him if this meant that the treaty made with the Kiev delegation would not be signed before the return of his own mission, he hesitated and promised to ask Kerlman about it. Having inquired, he sent us an answer in the negative. This was on February the 8th. By the 9th they had signed the treaty. This could not be delayed, not only on account of Leopold's birthday, but for the more important reason which Kerlman undoubtedly explained to Cernin. If we should send our representatives into the Ukraine just now, they might really convince themselves that the Rada does not exist and then we shall have to face a single all-Russian delegation which would spoil our prospects in the negotiations. By the Austro-Hungarian delegation we were advised to put principles aside and to place the question on a more practical plane. Then the German delegation would be disposed to concessions. It was unthinkable that the Germans should decide to continue the war over, say, the Moon Islands, if we put this demand into concrete form. We replied that we were ready to look into such concessions as their German colleagues were prepared to make. So far we have been contending for the self-determination of the Lithuanians, Poles, Livonians, Letts, Estonians and other peoples, and on all these questions you have told us that such self-determination is out of the question. Now let us see what your plans are in regard of the self-determination of another people, the Russians. What designs and plans of a military strategic nature are behind your seizure of the Moon Islands? For these islands, as an integral part of an independent Estonian Republic, 
or as a possession of the Federated Russian Republic, would have only a defensive military importance, while in the hands of Germany they would assume offensive significance, menacing the most vital centers of our country, and especially Petrograd. But of course Hoffman would make no concessions whatsoever. Then the hour for reaching a decision had come. We could not declare war, for we were too weak. The army had lost all of its internal ties. In order to save our country, to overcome this disorganization, it was imperative to establish the internal coherence of the toilers. This psychological tie can only be created by constructive work in factory, field and workshop. We had to return the masses of laborers who had been subjected to great and intense suffering, who had experienced catastrophes in the war, to the fields and factories where they must find themselves again and get a footing in the labor world and rebuild internal discipline. This was the only way to save the country, which was now atoning for the sins of Tsarism and the bourgeoisie. We had to get out of the war and withdraw the army from the slaughterhouse. Nevertheless, we threw this in the face of the German militarism. The peace you are forcing down our throats is a piece of aggression and robbery. We cannot permit you, Messrs. diplomats, to say to the German working men, you have characterized our demands as avaricious, as annexationist. But look, under these very demands we have brought you the signatures of the Russian Revolution. Yes, we are weak. We cannot fight at present but we have sufficient revolutionary courage to say that we shall not willingly affix our signatures to the treaty which you are writing with the sword on the body of living peoples. We refuse to affix our signatures. I believe we acted properly, comrades. I do not mean to say, friends, that a German advance upon Russia is out of the question. It were too rash to make such an assertion in view of the great strength of the German imperialistic party, but I do believe that the stand we have taken in the matter has rendered it far more difficult for German militarism to advance upon us. What would happen if it should advance? To this there is but one thing to say. If it is possible in our country, a country completely exhausted and in a state of desperation, to raise the spirits of the more revolutionary energetic elements, if a struggle in defense of our revolution and the territory comprised within it is still possible, then this is the case only as a result of our abandoning the war and refusing to sign the peace treaty. End of chapter 25